0: Welcome to Taking Measure, a podcast series exploring Roderick Haig-Brown's 1950 classic work Measure of the Year, reflections on home, family, and a life fully lived. I'm your host, Dan McLennan, and I'm sitting at the desk in the study at Above Tide also known as Haig Brown House. From here, I can look out the window across the grounds at the Campbell River flowing past, just as Haig Brown did when he wrote more than 20 books and numerous articles and essays, lectures, and more. He was a remarkable man on many levels, an early, eloquent naturalist and conservationist, a farmer, a magistrate, a university chancellor, and an award-winning author. In the world of fly fishing, he occupies the pantheon. In Measure of the Year, Haig Brown presents a chapter for each month in the lives of the farm, his family, the community, and the nature that surrounds them. So we're going to bring you Haig Brown in 12 parts, through his book, through the eyes and voices of his four children and others who knew him well. We'll take a Measure of the Man through his Measure of the Year. Sandra Parrish was born in Scotland and immigrated to Canada with her family when she was four years old. They initially settled in the tiny North Vancouver Island village of Port Alice before moving to Campbell River and a home just up the road from Hague Brown House. She has many fond memories of spending time on the banks of the Quinsam and Campbell Rivers, with the ever-present sound of running water as a backdrop to her childhood. She began her career at the Museum of Campbell River in the 1980s and has held several positions with the organization. In her role as collections and exhibits manager, she was responsible for overseeing the installation of the museum's permanent exhibits. She first became involved at the Hague Brown House in 1990, when she worked with the BC Heritage Branch to conduct an initial inventory of the objects in the house. When the house, which was owned by the province, was transferred to the city of Campbell River, she assisted with shaping the terms of the management agreement and the operations at the site. In 2014, Sandra assumed the role of Executive Director of the Museum at Campbell River, which she holds to this day. Sandra Parrish, welcome to Taking Measure. Thank you,
1: Dan. Nice to be here.
0: And I understand you've got a reading for us from the month of September.
1: I do. So somewhere around the middle of August, Anne begins putting meals on the table, of which she can and does say with some pride, everything came off the place. By September, it is no longer a matter for comment. The month brings a full flood of plenty from orchard and vegetable garden and pastures, from the river and from the woods. Usually there's a three-day Southeaster and rain during the first week of September to mark the break between the full, steady strength of summer and the new vigor of fall. The storm passes and the sun seems as hot as ever, but the rain has sprung the dew and the mists rise from the pastures and the river at night. Very often, mid-September, is forest fire weather and sometimes there is a hard dry wind that shrivels the leaves, dries them up and rattles their bones, then tears them away like the dead bodies of Indians from burial trees. That is a time to worry and watch the sky for the great bursting cumulus of smoke that signals a fire out of control. But in most years, the night dews and mists are enough to soften the threat of the gleaming days and the warmth and the brilliance is as welcome as any weather in the year, ripening the harvest, yielding it dry and unspoiled to cellar and barn and root house. And the rivers hold low and the hills are hot under the sun and the grouse spread out along them. In September, the pileated woodpeckers seem to show up again about the place and the bluebirds pass through and the first great flocks of ducks sweep southward down the channel and over the islands. The humpbacks and spring salmon have come into the river and the backed cow-throat trout, golden-bellied, orange-finned, are with them. This year, a quick run of brilliant silvery rainbows came up too and the river held low all through the month and it was a simple matter to find three or four good fish with a floating fly almost any evening.
0: That's a wonderful passage, and September feels like such a wonderful time in the measure of the year. There's so much going on, and as he does in every chapter, he starts by rooting us back at above tide, and this is what's going on in such detail. And September, the season is turning, the garden is feeding the family, the river is alive with returning fish. It almost feels as though you've come to Above Tide at its very best moment. Does September speak to you that way?
1: It does. I think that his description of it is very beautiful and really speaks to this place and what it's like to feel that month here.
0: Now, you grew up just down the road from an early age. What are your earliest memories of this area?
1: Oh, well, it's the river. (laughs) It's always the river. Yeah, it's the sound of the river, the the coolness in the air, the forest, the birds, the wildlife. That Those are my earliest memories of being here in Campbell River. And for those who don't know the area,
0: in the introduction I talked about the Quinsam and the Campbell here at Above Tide. We are on the Campbell and we are just a little ways downstream from where the smaller Quinsam river meets the campbell i guess we'd call that the confluence so it's as much a part of the area as the campbell in some ways so you were here your family moved here from port alice when you were quite young what brought your family from scotland to port alice in the first place that's a heck of a move
1: (laughs) well my parents um they wanted a different life for myself and for my sister My father had been to Ontario as a a young man for a short period. They decided to to come to Canada. And at that time, the pump mill up in Port Alice was actually advertising for tradesmen. And my father was an electrician. So when they saw that, they put two and two together and made the move. They were close to 40. yeah, it's astounding to me that they would they would do that but it, yes, they just wanted a very different life for myself and my sister.
0: And then what precipitates the move from Port Alice to Campbell River?
1: Well actually we were in Burnaby in between and my grandpa had passed away so there was a bit of an inheritance so it was an opportunity for them to to buy some property. And they happened to know someone who was in the Campbell River area. And that's how we ended up here. There wasn't any sort of firm job or anything like that. It was, oh, well, let's go to Campbell River. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: I can I think of worse places to move to? Yes. Certainly, when you came here, you were very young. But can you tell us, in relation to Above Tide, where was your home in, in this neighborhood?
1: So my home was just before the confluence of the Campbell of the, and the Quinsome. So that's a little bit west of the Bup Tide, so just up the road.
0: A little upriver.
1: A little upriver of Bup Tide. so that's where my <laughs> home was. Mm-hmm.
0: A beautiful area, not heavily populated at the time either. There weren't that many houses up that way, I don't think.
1: No, they were bigger lots. They were acre lots, not very many neighbours at all.
0: Mm-hmm. So take us back into that era. How did you first come upon the Hague Browns?
1: I don't really remember. My parents were both avid readers and liked to discuss what they were reading. And so I think I always just seemed to know that there was a well-known writer that lived in the neighborhood. Of course, I went to Campbellton Elementary School, which was almost across the street from the Hague Brown House. There isn't a point in time where I first learned about him. I just knew that was the home of a, of a writer.
0: Right in the neighborhood.
1: And right in the neighborhood. And then I, too, read a lot. And I think the first book I read of his was actually his, one of his adult fictions, which was On the Highest Hill. So I, th- I think I might have been about grade um, six or seven when I went to the local library and took that book out and read it.
0: Mm-hmm. And do you remember doing the same with Measure of the Year? How did you come across that one?
1: I definitely reread Measure of the Year in 1990 when we were doing the inventory at the house. But I had read it before that. Again, it's so early in my childhood. I can't really place when I read some of his other books.
0: We're having this discussion. I'm here at Haig Brown House. And the only reason that that we're able to do this is that Hig Brown House and the property have been preserved and maintained. But I'm not sure that a lot of us are all that aware of how that came to pass. You, on the other hand, have had a lot to do with that transition and some of the stages of that transition, and obviously you are our local historian here. Can you tell us how this got started? Uh, I used to think at one point that after Rod had died, maybe after Anne had died, that there was a move to preserve the place, when in fact the effort started while they were both very much alive and living at Above Tide.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: How did that come to be?
1: Absolutely. Yes, it was in the in the late 70s. Roderick passed in 1976. And of course, by that time, their children were all out and about in their various lives. And they were beginning to consider what they would do with the property. And I believe they went to the children and asked any of them if they were interested. And they said, no, you know, we've all got our, our own lives and our own place, which of course was very much something that Roderick and Anne fostered, is the the children moving on and finding their own place in, in the world. So at the time, they were very concerned about the development that they could see along the estuary and along the river bank and the housing and industrial development that was encroaching. And they learned of a green belt protection program that the province had in place where you could sell your property to this uh, protected Greenbelt program. And they thought that was the best thing to do to preserve this little section of the river. Because remember, it's almost a 20 acre plot of land that they owned. So it was, it was that, that they really wanted to ensure that the riverbank was protected. With that sale, they didn't ask a lot of money for it. It was at a reduced price. And they also negotiated with the province for life tenancy. Unfortunately, I think it was only a couple of years later that Roderick passed on, but Anne lived here until her death in 1990.
0: So essentially, they sold the property to the province of British Columbia. Mm -hmm. And that was to maintain the preserve, the property... And the house at Above Tide?
1: Yes, they were more concerned about the property. The house for them was a house to be used. And if they put any thought into it, it was, oh, well, it might be a- an interesting place for, for writers to-, to come and stay. But they didn't view it as a heritage site or uh, something that would preserve their history. It was a, a space to be used.
0: And more an effort to protect and keep green space along the river. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So that must have been quite an interesting process to go through. And in some ways, the picture changes again. When the province comes to the city, or does the city go to the province? How does it work that we transfer from province of British Columbia to city of Campbell River?
1: Well, we have to back up a little bit. So in the 80s, while Anne was still alive there were a number of people that thought, oh, there is some heritage value here in this house and in the immediate gardens, and that needs to be protected. From what I understand, the green space was under an environmental parks portion of the province management, but they thought, no, there's value in this heritage site. We want to preserve it. So what happened is the property was split into two sections, where the green space remained in the department where it was. And then the house and the immediate gardens was transferred to the heritage branch. So that's when it officially becomes a heritage site and under that sort of heritage jurisdiction. And then in the um, 2000s, of course, the heritage branch was going under a great transformation and they were devolving the management of all their heritage sites. And something a little bit different happened here Instead of still retaining ownership, they transferred the ownership of the site to the city of Campbell River. And then the city contracted with the museum to oversee the management on a day-to-day basis.
0: Yeah. So in order to make that happen, in order to make the transfer legitimate and to preserve as much as possible, you had to do an inventory of everything.
1: Yes. As I mentioned, the Hague Browns had life tenancy in the house. And while Anne was alive, the province looked after a new roof and all that sort of thing. But they didn't have to worry about any other details around the site. When Anne passed away, suddenly they were faced with a heritage site full of personal belongings, which was also part of the agreement, and not sure what to do about that. So the curator of the site, who was from Victoria, Jennifer Iredale, thought the first thing we need to do is an inventory. So she contacted the museum at Campbell River and asked for our staff to be involved in that inventory. So we spent about two weeks on site here with the Heritage Branch and very old dated computers <laughs> and uh, did a very thorough cataloged uh, Almost everything in the house, Valerie Haig-Brown was here for much of that, providing all kinds of little details about where this had come from and where this belonged and, and all of that was captured on, on the database. It was a bit of a time warp because at the same time I, I, I was rereading Measure of the Year And then I would read Measure of the Year at night and I'd come to work during the day and spend the day with Valerie. And it was like I was transported back to 1950s and this very rural community. So at the end of the day, when I left and went out the driveway, Campbell River was like a a complete shock because I was expecting this. Or rural place. So anyways, I've gotten a bit a bit off track. So, so the inventory was done by the, the Heritage Branch in the 1990s. You have
0: this very unique perspective in that you, as a child, you grew up along this river around this piece of property. And as an adult, it has been a big part of your career. You come to it from two very different perspectives. In some ways, maybe That measure of the year helps to tie the two of them together because it takes you back there.
1: It does take me back there. And I I think, yes, it is a unique perspective in that it's this property is part of my neighborhood (laughs) growing up. And it's also part of my work at the museum and protecting it and preserving it and all those sorts of things. But I think the, the thread that ties them both together is a long standing and very early appreciation for what an astounding person Roderick Hague Brown was and how far ahead of his time he was and how important So much of what he's written is and relevant to us today. A little later on, more during my time at the museum, I got to meet Anne in a a roundabout way. She was passed by that time. But I really realized that, no, it's not just Roderick. It's always Roderick and Anne, because they were an absolute team. They were a couple that clearly loved each other very much, but they made each other better. Their conversations, their thoughts, their views, they didn't always agree, but they complemented each other very much. So that's the thread, is that the importance of preserving and having a place to introduce people to Roderick and his, his writings
0: and Anne. I would hope that if there's one thing we have honoured in taking measure, this podcast is to avoid the easy way of focusing everything on Rod at the expense of Anne, when we see, particularly in Measure of the Year, as you so eloquently stated, they are a team. They are a very tight and productive and varied team who complement each other as opposed to being in total agreement all the time. The opposites attract maybe is overstated, but they help to keep each other on the even keel.
1: Mm-hmm. They do. Yeah.
0: So what was it like doing an inventory, almost an inventory of somebody's life when you're going through all this personal, I'm sitting here in the library and of course the, <laughs> the shelves are full of books that are there because Anne and Rod wanted them and collected them over time. I think it was Rod's expression we talked about earlier was, if you're not careful, a library happens to you as you mm-hmm. as you collect things. What was that process like doing the inventory?
1: It's actually one of the best things that I feel like I've done at the museum. It's, it's uh, had a lasting impact. It's... It's such a unique opportunity. It's just so many heritage sites are already emptied of all the, the the personal contents, and curators go about trying to track them down and bring them back. And here was a a site that was absolutely intact and full of stories. So it was just really an impactful um, experience and and a unique one that you just in my line of work, you don't get very often.
0: Did you find any gems along the way, things that you remember coming across when everything is here? When everything's
1: here. (laughs) (laughs) I can't recall any specific gems. I just remember thinking, wow, everything in this house has some story attached to it. You're sitting at Roderick's desk. And if you pull out one of those drawers, you'll see some elastic bands. And there's a story about <laughs> a story about those, you know that yes, they came in the mail, they were wrapped, the mail uh, were wrapped in these bands, and then they came to the desk. So it was astounding to me that the um, a level of detail about every object, anything in this house.
0: There is a drawer. I have just opened it under your instructions, so that's okay. I'm not desecrating anything. And it has at the front of the drawer. It's sectioned off with little wooden sections, like you'd you know, like you'd find maybe in an old post office. And at least three of these four sections are stuffed full of elastics. So you know what you're talking about. <laughs>
1: Yes, <laughs> and
0: they're the nice, thick postal type of elastics not, they are
1: yes, n- nothing, and, and they've held up very well, I mean, they're old elastic bands,
0: <laughs> indeed, not those not those wimpy thing little thin little things these are these are significant, so okay, I've just learned something else about Hig Brown that's been right here beside me all this time, uh, and I did not, and I did not know now, as you're going along doing the inventory type of thing, you must uh, i i I'm assuming, but I would think to this day, feel a real weight of responsibility. Somebody has essentially entrusted us to look after, but more specifically, you and the museum, to look after all of their worldly goods.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. No, it is an incredible weight of responsibility. In the museum field, it's a responsibility that we're very, very familiar with, that because yes, it's the possessions of Haig Browns in this house, but at the museum, we're caring for cultural objects and masks and regalia that have that same level of, of responsibility and, and weight. Mm-hmm.
0: Let's go back to our history lesson here now. The province has essentially devolved the property to the city of Campbell River, the city of Campbell River, and rightly so, comes to the museum and says, we'd like you to look after this place for us.
1: Yes, so it was a bit of a challenging site for them to manage. It doesn't get as much foot traffic as, say, Point Ellis House or Barkerville, and Roderick Hig Brown is a little bit less known than some of their other more prominent um parts of BC history. So they took a bit of a different approach when they looked at how they might utilize the site. So they had a a fellow here who managed the site before it was transferred to the museum and In his management, what he did is he established the bed and breakfast and a few of the other programs. So when we took it over, there was some programs already in place. It was a matter of just fine tuning them and making them fit within our organization. So the house is in the summer months, operated as a bed and breakfast. We also have it available for wedding rentals and garden rentals. And then in the winter, as Brian Brett covered in his podcast, it's uh, the home to a writer who's a writer in residence.
0: It's quite a unique routine that has been developed here over time. So essentially, the, the bed and breakfast idea was something that you assumed when the city took over or passed it on to the museum to look after. Since then, I would think the bed and breakfast has taken on maybe even a more special flair. It's not just, oh, here's a place to stay, but it's, I assume you get all sorts of students of history who want to come and spend time in the house of Rod and Anne hague Brown.
1: Yes, the the bed and breakfast has taken on a bit of a different flair. And and yes, it's not your typical sort of boutique bed and breakfast. It's more of an experience. You know, there's not many heritage sites that actually have a working bed and breakfast in them. And one of the reasons that, that it works here and it fits here is that this house was a very busy house. We might think that Campbell River was a very small rural community where all you saw was your neighbor every once in a while. But the Hague Browns had a constant stream of visitors. Look at the the chapter um, in August where he's talking about the guests, all the summer guests. You know, there was Anne's family from Seattle and her friends from Seattle, Roderick's family from England. Later on, there was the, the battered women that Anne would provide shelter for. So it was always a place where there was conversations and people coming and going. So the bed and breakfast provides guests with an opportunity to be part of that. What would we call it? That constant feeling of people and conversations being an intimate view into that experience. So that's why that fits. The other big part of how we manage the Hague Brown House and how the province did as well is that Roderick and Anne, they felt the house was something to be used and would have a life and after Anne passed away, the four siblings were very firm that they did not want this house to become a shrine to Roderick, where you would walk in and look into his bedroom and say, "This, there's the bed Roderick slept on. They They wanted it to be used. They wanted it to be a place for the community to enjoy, and most specifically, a place that would continue to be an inspiration for writers and that's what the writer in residence program fulfills as well. So any of the activities that we that we consider for the property here always fits in with how the property was used while Roderick and Anne were still alive and their philosophies plus the wishes of how they would like this space to be utilized.
0: And somewhere along the way, the Hague Brown Institute is formed to help guide that passage, I believe.
1: The Hague Brown Institute, it was a name change, the Hague Brown Kingfisher Creek Society. The Hague Brown Kingfisher Creek Society had been formed while Anne was still alive with Van Egan and David Brown, and they had specific projects to restore the Kingfisher Creek that had ran through the the property. Once that was done, those people that were involved in that sort of stepped back, and the Hague Brown Institute took on a new role not necessarily to restore the creek, because that had already been done, but to further the Haig brown philosophies and story.
0: Is there a part of the property, is there a place in the house that is a favorite spot of yours? You've known this area for so long, from a little girl up to a museum executive director. It's certainly a place you're very familiar with.
1: Oh, it has to be the study. It's where you're sitting, Dan. <laughs> it's the study and the feeling in the house. I, I think there's just a very nice feeling in this space. And I don't know how many of the writers who've come and lived here have said, I feel like Roderick and Anne have just stepped out. Uh, you know, there's there's that feeling. And then there is all those conversations, all those people who had so many different conversations in these space. It feels like the, the house is it seeped into the walls, but most definitely in that study.
0: Now let's fast forward to uh, not that long ago. How did the idea of the podcast come together as a companion to the, to the measure of the year, the book?
1: Well, it was actually Marjorie Greaves who came up with the idea of a podcast. As you know, Marjorie has extensive um, broadcasting experience and she was exploring the world of podcasting. Marjorie has also, for our third year, been the site manager at the Hague Brown House. So in the summer, the bed and breakfast is operated by site manager. Marjorie came up with a suggestion right in the midst of covid where you know the museum's trying to figure out okay how are we going to how are we going to continue programming and do something when we can't see people or have them come in and so that's where it started the original thought was it would just purely be readings for measure of the year and then it kind of morphed to interviews
0: we've had the opportunity to speak with each of the four hig brown children which was a, a wonderful opportunity, and a number of others who knew Rod or Anne very well, and they have pieced together uh, quite a picture of life at Above Tide and of the Hig Browns, maybe in some ways that we haven't heard before. Does it feel like maybe we're somewhat, in at least some small way, to that general overall knowledge of uh, of the Hig Browns and the property?
1: Absolutely. I'm very familiar with using exhibitry as a way to communicate, using documentaries, you know, lectures and those sorts of things. But I think this format, listening to people's voices, really lends itself very well to sharing the story of Roderick and Anne and communicating everything that he discusses in measure of the year i think it's it's been a wonderful medium to use this format in and i did forget to mention the other piece of the puzzle was you dan <laughs> in our podcast puzzle <laughs> is having someone who was knowledgeable themselves and interested in the topic as the interviewer has made such an astounding difference in the podcast. I think that is just sort of the icing on the cake. So thank you. Thank you very much for that.
0: (laughs) And I should thank you. It's been a wonderful opportunity to meet all of the Hague Brown children and to find so many other people with interesting elements to the Hague Brown history that I was completely unaware of in the past. Now, you probably know as much about Above Tide and the Hague Browns as almost anyone. It is, it's a big part of your career as executive director now of the museum at Campbell River. Did you hear anything that surprised you along the way?
1: I, I heard so many things that surprised me along the way. <laughs> I don't think I could even point out one because <laughs> there was just so many. Thinking about them all, you know, from the interviews with the four siblings and then family friends and then others who were acquaintances and then had never actually met Roderick and Anne. Each of them brought a very unique perspective and just a new insight into both Roderick and Anne and their life here. And no, there, there isn't one. There's several.
0: And now the opportunity, I guess, going into this bed and breakfast season. The opportunity exists for the first time that people who come to the bed and breakfast can actually pick up the book while they are here, read a chapter, listen to the podcast about March or whatever the month might be, and add a completely new perspective to staying at Above Tide.
1: Absolutely. Brings a whole new opportunity for them to have a really immersive experience staying at Above Tide.
0: Now, we've been asking this question of many, if you had the opportunity to ask, and I'm sure the questions have come to you many, many, many times over the years, if you had an opportunity to ask Rod and or Anne a question or two
1: now, what would you ask them? I'd ask them, how do you think we're doing? (laughs) I'd want their opinion on just about everything that's happening in the world around us. I'd like their thoughts. I'd love to be able to take them down along to the mouth of the river and see how that industrial area has been completely transformed and ask them, what do you think? Are we doing okay? There's just so many questions, but I think the biggest thing would be having the opportunity to have those conversations With Roderick, where he is looking at both sides of any issue.
0: As he so remarkably does.
1: As he so remarkably does. And then saying that one gem, that one liner, that you kind of go, yes, that balance. I think that it would be remarkable to hear that when you think about Reconciliation, the impact of the pandemic, the war in Ukraine, all of those issues, the world today, just what are your gems? You think,
0: well, we talked earlier about the weight of responsibility. I'm thinking you must feel that they would be, Rod and Anne, would be pretty pleased with where Above Tide and the property is today,
1: I think they'd be pleased. And, you know, certainly that was a question that was asked of, of each of the, the four four siblings. And they're pleased. They're happy with the, the direction that it's going in. They're happy with the role that the site still has in the community. So based on that, I, th- I think their parents would be pleased, too. So what's
0: next for the museum in regards to Above Tide and the Hague Brown House? There's a new... Uh, season just getting underway and of course the grounds are used by so many people too when we have the uh, festival in the fall and so forth are there other plans in the works
1: well there isn't any firm plans in the works but certainly it has always been on our list to have more of a, an educational component linked to the house to be able to expose more of the the school children, create awareness of the site and of some of Roderick's readings. So that's kind of a a long-range wish list of of what we would like to do here.
0: The province devolves the property to the city of Campbell River, and that's not without and probably why it might have been devolved in the first place, is that the province doesn't necessarily want to upkeep the property. There is, there is cost involved, and as often happened in the past, something is handed down to the locals. And so, in this case, the province hands the property to the city, and that's no small expense for the city to suddenly assume. And one has to wonder... How easily it may or might have happened that that would have been the end of it. And and like so many other heritage sites, it would have uh, potentially faded into the background. T- to the credit of all, that didn't happen.
1: No, absolutely. And yes, you're quite right. There's many, many heritage sites we could go on about where they weren't supported at the municipal or city level, and they've just disappeared But uh, here in Campbell River, the the councillors and the mayor of the day were very concerned about what was going to happen to this site and recognized the importance of it and of preserving it. Today, you often hear the councillors talk about how we have these two bookends, two heritage sites. We have the Hague Brown House on the north end of Campbell River, and we have the Sybil Andrew Cottage on the south end of Campbell River. So that's how they view it. And within that, of course, that's meant a financial responsibility, a responsibility to maintain it and to to care for it, which they have been very supportive about. And even more so, they have been very supportive of taking the museum's lead on it. They don't come in and treat it as like a park space and want to put in new benches or new carvings or things like that. They understand its heritage value and they understand that the museum has a very firm role in protecting that and they listen.
0: Very good thing to have.
1: It's a very good thing
0: to have. And to bring us full circle, perhaps the best argument, the best example of the importance or maybe the uniqueness of this property is measure of the year.
1: It is. It's all measure of the year.
0: It's a history lesson. It's a study in conservation. It shows us the observations of so much of the wildlife in the area. It certainly shows off Rod Haig-Brown and his writing and shows off Anne as such an integral part of that partnership. I remember, and I think maybe it was Valerie, who told us it was a love letter from home uh, she was not the only one of the children who said they can pick it up at any time and <laughs> and start reading and are not only taken back here but feel like they're at home <laughs> an amazing piece of work
1: it is and the other factor too Dan is it's also about community the pages are full of what is happening in the community, and names of friends and issues that the community is dealing with. So it's it's not just a reflection on family, it's a reflection on their life and their interaction and this community. So that of itself is another reason to, to pick it up and enjoy it, to learn a little bit about how Campbell River came to be what it is today. Sandra,
0: I'd like to thank you for your insights and your expertise, not only in our conversation here, but in helping to steer the Hig Brown property and the house into the future through the museum at uh, at Campbell River. It has been such a pleasure.
1: Thank you very much, Dan. And it has been such a pleasure to work with both you and and Marjorie on this project.
0: Thank you for joining us at Taking Measure, a podcast series exploring Roderick Haig-Brown's 1950 classic work, Measure of the Year, reflections on home, family, and a life fully lived. You can link to the Hague brown House website in the show notes, and there you'll find all kinds of goodies, including historical photographs and information about how to experience the house and all it offers, in person or virtually. From the study at Above Tide, the Hague Brown House heritage site on the bank of the Campbell River, I'm Dan McLennan.